Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, this is going to be part two of the April 25th Gallipoli landings. On the last episode, I covered the landings at S, X, and Y Beach. And on this episode, I'll be discussing the W Beach landing and the French landing on the Asia side of the Dardanelles at Kumkale. The situation was falling apart for the British from the start. Can the French landing turn this around and will the W Beach landing go as planned? Admittingly, before the podcast, I knew very little about the Dardanelles campaign. I mean, I knew the Anzacs duked it out with the Turks. I knew it was bloody. I knew there were some British involved. But I didn't know the extent of the beach landings, and I didn't even know the French were involved until doing the show. And I think that's fair. It's easy to assume all the French soldiers would have been on the Western Front protecting their own home from being invaded. I mean, the Germans at one point were closing in on Paris. You would think the French would have called up all troops, including colonials and metropolitans, to assist. So when I learned they had a unit that was assigned to the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force in 1915, it was a little shocking. The more and more I'm reading, learning, and talking about this campaign, the material seems to support my thoughts that the Allies made some real horrible decisions at the price of human lives, and a lot of them. The leadership from some commanders was unforgiving, if that's the correct word to use. And part of that is because they weren't used to this type of modern warfare. Most of the commanders were used to the old style of fighting, and it was showing. But let me tap on the brakes and slow it down a bit because it's admin notes time. First, I hope everyone is doing fantastic. I hope you're smiling and in good health. It's looking like parts of the world are already starting to shut down again. I follow a couple of YouTubers in Paris and they're already in, on full lockdown. I don't want to be that person who tells you to lock yourself in your home for the remainder of the year, but coming from a person who's beat COVID, I'll just stress to be cautious and wear a mask if you can. Nothing more, nothing less. Oh, and my smell is barely coming back. And it's strange because out of nowhere, often throughout the day, I get this pungent chemical smell and that others can't smell. No idea, but it's very odd. My wife and I just celebrated our anniversary. We went down to San Diego for one night on the bay, which was amazing. And the second day we spent with friends on the town wearing masks, being safe, of course. We ate good food and drank some good beers. For the first time in my life, I had Ethiopian food and it was delicious. I personally would substitute the sponge bread for rice. But as they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Or... One in San Diego at an Ethiopian restaurant, do as the San Diego Ethiopians would do. Over the same weekend, I had a Facebook discussion with an individual promoting her short film about the 1915 Ypres gas attack, and it's titled Attrition, which first released in 2018. You can find the trailer on YouTube. She was promoting a paid screening in October, and I explained to her that I was busy and not able to make it. I was told it's broadcasting on a French network in November, and she would let me know the dates on a specific network. So hopefully, I'll get the date and I will pass it along through social media. Shameless plug commencing in three, two, one. 
So if you don't follow the show on social media, please like Over the Top, a great war podcast on Facebook and follow me on Instagram at OTTGW podcast. And that's my shameless plug. In all seriousness, the trailer looks good and I'm expecting the short film to be great. Of course, if that's if I get to watch it, no promises. For this episode, since the weather has cooled down a bit, I am drinking a glass of Don Q barrel-aged rum. It's uh it's good and smooth. It's got a little bit of spice. My pal opened my eyes to aged rums, and I had to try it, so here I am. If you like good bourbons, I think you'll like aged rum. You can sip on it straight up. It's smooth. In fact, so far, might be a little smoother than bourbon, but this is my first go-round, so I still need to do some more testing. All right, folks. That's enough admin notes. Let's get right into what we're here for, and that's part two of the Gallipoli landings. I've covered the landings at S, X, and Y beaches on the last episode, and if you listen to it, you'll know things weren't going well for the Allies at this sectors. The boys at Y Beach were literally ran off. They were forced into a retreat due to poor leadership. X and S weren't as bad, but nothing was gained as of yet, and both the Turkish and British casualties were increasing as time ticked away. I keep thinking back to the beginning of this whole idea of the Dardanelles campaign, about when the tides really changed and why the commanders decided on the actions they chose to take. I mean, I get why they halted the push into the straits after the ships were sunk and hundreds of sailors had perished. That's not an acceptable way to lose your navy. Not to sea mines, although it happened, yet still not acceptable to that scale. The acceptable loss is, if they're battling out with an opposing navy that's equal in power, which will be coming up in future episode. That is acceptable because they know they'll lose ships during a naval battle. That's what happens when opposing navies duke it out, but not like they did at the Dardanelles. This is the British and French Navy. Aside from the Germans, are probably the two most powerful navies at that time. The Turkish didn't even really have ships. I mean, they, they kind of had a battleship named Gobin, which flew a Turkish flag, but it was manned and controlled by Germans, so it was really a German ship when you think about it. I can sympathize why the admirals... Actually, no, not sympathize. That's not a good word for this. I can understand why they halted, and I can understand why they had to come up with another plan. But in my opinion, they should have never sent that force to the Mediterranean aiming for Constantinople, period. If leaders would have just read between the lines, they would have seen that the Ottoman Empire was already in turmoil, just waiting for an uprising at any moment. The Sultan's time was coming to an end. All that they risked for one city, in my opinion, wasn't worth the reward. And, which Russia was planning to step in if they did arrive and defeat the Turks there. Landing those boys wasn't a good move at all. So much will be sacrificed. And after I get done with the Gallipoli, ask yourself, what was gained? And think about this. How would history have rewrote itself if all those soldiers moved into the Mediterranean were instead taken to the Western Front or the Eastern Front? How much would history have changed? Now, the purpose for S, X, and Y beach landings were a little different from W and V. 
The main concentration of the British force was to land on W and V beaches. This was the British main objective. The other beaches were to draw Turkish troops away from the heel of the peninsula, draw them into a fight by flanking them. Of course, the plan was to defeat them, then link up with the V&W troops and proceed north towards Belair. And it may have seemed like I was one-sided on the last episode, stressing how the Turks swarmed upon the British and drove them back like they were the bigger, more powerful opponent. By no means do I think the Turkish army was more powerful than the British army. But because of poor leadership and unexpected terrain, they did take a beating on April 25th, 1915. That's historically accurate. But I'm not one-sided at all. I'm just telling it as, it, as accurately as I know it. We know by now the British can duke it out. They've proven that on the Western Front. So please don't let one day of battle bring upon negative judgment because the Brits are indeed a force to be reckoned with. But before I get into the W Beach, let me start this off with the French landing. The French, under the command of General Albert Diamad, landed at Cum Calais on the Asian side of the Dardanelles. And much like S, X, and Y, this was meant to be nothing more than a supporting attack to protect the Hellas landings. Their job was to seek out and destroy artillery batteries firing from the Asia side. Nothing more was expected there. I mean, if you look at the map, Kum Calais is really going off course from the objective of moving north, but it was a great location for supporting fire from the battleships. Plus, the artillery there could pose a threat and needed to be destroyed. The Turks at Gumkale were commanded by General Weber Pasha, and their job was simple. Give little fight during the day, try to keep as many troops as possible hidden from naval gunfire, fight just enough to halt them, then at night, release the main force from the 3rd and 11th Divisions to attack and drive them back out to sea. Nothing real magical with that plan, pretty straightforward. This is the only plan so far that seems to make any sense. For the Turks, of course. They predicted the Allies would land troops there, and they were prepared. And the fact is, they were stacked with troops at the sector. The French were walking up to a hornet's nest, throwing stones not knowing what's inside. The landing was to take place at dawn. The troop ships Jean d'Arc and Askold began making their way towards the spear of the Asian point not far from where the ancient city of Troy lies. As the Bailus ready themselves for final departure, a preparatory bombardment of, of Kumkale commenced along with the beachfront and surrounding hills. A medical officer describes what it was like on that morning, saying, quote, The sun pierces the early mist. It emerges above the Gallipoli Hills in the hollow of a bay like an enormous globe of blood-red fire. The soldiers on the ships prepare to land as we approach the Asiatic coast. The gunners are at their places. Powerful guns at, are at our disposal. A first shot is fired. Everyone is dazed. One's ears hurt. The blood goes to one's head. Before we can stuff cotton into our ears, a second and third shot are fired. The outline of the village, Yenisher, is now ragged. It is a destruction, certain, 
methodical, and regular. We say, see a big house with a red roof. A first shell marks it with a black fountain of smoke. It is ruined, and one feels sad, for perhaps it has never sheltered other than peaceful people, perhaps wise and philosophical old men and lovers, only absorbed in themselves and their own passionate embraces. The second shot hitting it full, disembowels it, scattering it to atoms. The third shell ends its agony. Medical Officer Joseph Fasal, 6th Colonial Regiment, Brigade Colonial, 1st Division, CEO, end quote. Clearly, you can hear from the words of Joseph Fasal that he's not only an educated man, but a passionate man with a compassionate heart. If you Google, Google the diaries of French doctor Joseph Vassal, it should bring up a downloadable PDF file. In it, there's writings to his wife and some good photos of the Jean d'Arc troop ship. You can also find his book, The Uncensored Letters from the Dardanelles, on the web. I bought a used paperback reprint from Amazon. I think I got it for 10 bucks. I actually seen a copy going for almost $1,000. I didn't look into it. I just thought that's absurd that anybody would pay that much for a book. I mean, unless it's an original manuscript from somebody like Hemingway, that would be an investment, of course. But $1,000 for what looked like a printed book is madness. It's criminal. There's an, there was another book I seen while I was browsing for a cheaper copy. And as cool as this book sounds, it's still ridiculous. It's a diary count of the Dardanelles by a Captain Stevenson, written in pencil. It's, it's going for over $3,000. That's just way too rich for my blood. I think maybe something like that would be more suitable at a great war museum or something like that. Books were intended to educate and arouse the imagination, not break the bank. Anywho, that morning, there were strong currents which caused the delay in the landings. The men actually didn't make it to shore until 10 a.m. at an unoccupied ruined fort at Kumkale. And aside from a few artillery rounds, there wasn't much resistance put up by the Turks at first. Notice how I said at first. Because as the French would say, the resistance is coming. Because of the delayed landing and, of course, confusion on the beach, it wasn't until around 1,700 hours that the men from the 6th Colonial Regiment began to make their assaulting advance on Yanisher, 11 hours after the original planned time for the landings. The Corps Expe Expeditionnaire de Orient was moving right towards a force that was well aware of their presence and well prepared. Around 1,800 hours... A reconnaissance plane reported seeing strong reinforcing columns of Turkish troops closing in on Yenisher. The Poilus halted their advance. They began to reinforce their position at Kumkale by digging makeshift trenches, setting up barbed wire, and punching holes in walls for sniper positions. It's important to understand who the 6th Colonial Regiment was or what they were formed from. The one division, which later grew to two, was formed from French colonial and metropolitan troops which was France's response for an expeditionary force for the Dardanelles campaign. Many of the metropolitan soldiers came from Algeria, Tunisia, and one battalion of foreign legion. The colonial troops were mainly made up of Senegalese and white regulars. The division also had strong 75 millimeter artillery battery attached. Now, this new French expeditionary force wasn't made up of men pulled from farms or villages throughout France and forced into this war. 
The unit was formed for men who were already trained soldiers. They were regular army troops trained to fight, much like the British 29th Division. They weren't like Louis Bartas, who one day were, was living their, his life, making wine barrels, supporting his family, enjoying his simple life, and the next day was forced to join a war created by aristocrats and politicians. And I respect Barthas very much, so I'm not speaking ill about his attitude towards the war. I'm just pointing out the type of soldiers the 6th Colonial Division was made up of. Tensions grew rapidly as the night fell on the Pailus, knowing an attack was about to kick off at any moment. Around 20-30 hours, the Turks began their assault on the French at Kumkale. Bullets began to crack through the air. All night, three battalions from the 3rd Turkish Division relentlessly threw themselves onto the French positions. It got very bloody. At one point, the Turkish overran the French trenches, but the Pailus pulled together a strong counterattack and pushed them back. This was the true head-to-head -head battle that often came to hand-to-hand -hand combat. Men would lock up, each trying to drive a bayonet into the other. Men were even fist-fighting for their lives. And in a fight like this, anything goes. Pulling, punching of the testicles, biting, eye gouging, slamming heads into rocks or even throwing rocks. Anything to get the upper hand because it was either kill or be killed. All the while, bullets continued to crack by. Artillery was exploding everywhere. The winner of the bayonet duel would pull their sword like knives out of their opponent who was dying in agony splurting of blood everywhere. Some men out of fear didn't only stab once, they stabbed multiple times. The enemy was probably dead by the time they stopped. Some men had their heads violently crushed open by rocks spilling out their brains. And let's not forget bullets and shrapnels that were ripping through body parts. Limbs were being ripped off, hands and feet, decapitation, ghastly wounds. One thing helping the Pailus at that point was supporting fire from the 75 millimeters and the guns from the ships. But remember, this is 1915. It's nighttime. <laughs> Night fishing doesn't exist. So as the supporting fire was taking out Turkish troops, I'm positive they were also taking out their own. But nonetheless, this did cause the Turks to back off. A makeshift hospital had been established aboard the Savoy. Bloody casualties were flowing in. Joseph Vassal was on the scene working aboard the hospital ship. He described it saying, quote, Till the first rays of dawn, the next day we are leaning over wounded in an atmosphere of blood, of groans, and of indescribable horrors. We do not stop for a single minute. The wounded still come in. They are mounted on the deck from the bottom of the boats and from a long line of stretchers. We were able to put six wounded at a time on the big tables of the children's playroom of the Savoy. Sometimes not even a groan is to be heard. The silence is impressive. Our fellows are admirable. The wounds of the night are nevertheless frightful. A sergeant major comes back to us only to die. His chest was crushed by shrapnel, and for a moment we saw his heart, almost bare, still beating. There is a Senegalese with his head torn a foot missing, and three fingers of a hand gone. Another black, waiting his turn on a chair, is asked, Boku malad, non il il en un po, 
The doctor looks. Both legs have been torn off by a shell. Medical officer Joseph Vassal, 6th Colonial Regiment, end quote. That man quoted in French, which I probably screwed up and I'm sorry. By now, clearly, you know, I don't speak French. He was basically asked, are you sick? And he replied with, no, I have a few wounds. Both of his legs were torn away. A little more than a wound, I would say. This is what the Bailus experienced on April 25th at Gallipoli. It was a bloody night for the soldiers and the men working the hospital ship. Now, if any of you have been around a good amount of blood spilled, then you'll know in that quantity has a scent, blood has a scent to it. You get the sense of metallic or that ting in the back of your throat. And that's natural because blood contains iron. In fact, 70% of the body's iron resides in our red blood cells. The smell can be very unpleasant to some people. Uh, I'm going to want to tell you a story real quick. My first experience of a massive amount of blood. When I first got to my first unit, I was pretty much told, hey, you're going to go, you have to take combat lightsaber training. And part of combat lifesaver training was IV training. So for one whole day, they get a group of you and you're in this room and you guys are just, you get a, you get a partner and you're just sticking each other's with needles all day. And I'd say, <laughs> I'd say a few hours into this, the room is literally a bloodbath. And that's this is a really good test to see how you act in that scenario when you're when you're introduced to a lot of blood. I mean, at one point, my partner, kind of a meathead, stuck the needle all the way through the vein. He couldn't hit it, and the instructor's like, hey, we'll just keep moving around until you find it. So picture this. The needle's in there, in my arm, and he's 360 rotating this hypodermic needle to try to find a vein. So the blood didn't bother me. <laughs> I didn't pass out, but I will say... It was a very unpleasant day. I did learn that a big amount of blood like that so much didn't bother me. Well, this was also a bloody night for the Ottomans. They too had bodies littered throughout the Kumkale. And by the next day, to the surprise of the French, pockets of Turks will begin to surrender. But I'm not going to get into that because this is just about the first day of landings. I'll get into that on a later episode. Over on W Beach, or better known to the Turks as Tekebe, the Tommies didn't exactly have a warm welcoming. Here, the Turks had predicted this landing and entrenched themselves on the lower cliffs and the higher ground that covered the 300-yard beachfront. They were waiting for the shore party to arrive. The first Lincolnshire Fusiliers were tasked with taking W Beach. They would then move forward and link up with the Royal Fusiliers north of the beach at Hill 141 and 138, which they would then link up with the troops from V Beach. This beach was a direct route up to Akibaba, which was the highest point overlooking the Gallipoli Peninsula. And if everything went as planned, they would meet up with the flanking elements from the S, X, and Y beaches, then proceed forward. But as we already know, this operation isn't going as planned. To make matters worse for the W landing, the Turks had laid barbed wire all across the beachfront. One of the most famous pictures from the invasion of Normandy in World War II is where you see rows of metal beach obstacles called Czech hedgehogs, which was meant to stop tanks and vehicles from entering the beach. Imagine that, but being barbed wire. And of course, this was meant to keep troops out. 
that's what the Tommies were heading right into. And you might be saying, well, they had battleships. Why didn't they, why didn't they bombard the beach front, which would make complete sense? Sounds like the thing you would do before landing of this type. And the answer to that is the supporting ships failed to get in close enough and didn't do their job. They failed doing their, their part. So by the time 0600 rolled around and the rows of boats carrying the Brits approached the beach, they quickly realized the Turkish wire obstacles and trenches had not been eliminated. As the boats got closer to the beach, they began to take heavy fire. Now take note of that heavy fire because I'm gonna discuss that more in depth shortly. And if you look at these boats, they're not meant for covering fire. The captains of these small boats were frantically yelling at the men to lay down or get down as low as possible. But again, if you see these boats and see how they were packed in, I don't think lying down was much of an option for those men. The key was to get the troops ashore as quickly as possible a seaman in charge of one of these boats described it saying, quote, I told the men to lie down in the bottom of the boat, leaving myself and six oarsmen exposed to the enemy's fire. I then ordered them all to jump out and get under cover as quickly as they could. As soon as we touched the beach, we could see wire entanglements. The fire was terrible, just like a hailstorm. I jumped out of the stern up to my arms in water and pushed the boat in. The sergeant jumped in front of me and got mortally wounded. The cries of the wounded were terrible. By now, the Lancashires were ashore. We came off for more men and one more was killed in my crew. He was shot in the ear and was quite dead when I picked him up. Leading Seaman Gilligan, HMS Euralius, end quote. And his name really was Gilligan. I didn't make that up. And he was a skipper of that boat. The men from the Lincolnshire Fusilers were doing all they could to delay ex exiting the boat. I mean, think about it. They seen the barbed wire, the bullets are cracking over their head. Some of the men are getting hit. They had the, oh crap, what are we gonna do look? But eventually they had to get out and head for the beach. As unpleasant as that sounds, that's what needed to happen. Rifle fire and reported machine gun fire began to rain down on the troops just as the boats grounded out. Once the men hit the water, they frantically made their way for the beach but were stopped by the wire. Some of the men didn't know what to do, they just stopped. Others immediately dropped to figure out their next move. Tons of others dropped by bullets. Just on the other side of the wire was sand dunes. The men needed to get there in a hurry, if not, more would be slaughtered. A major from the fuselers described it, saying, quote, As ordered, the men ran up to the wire and lay down waiting for the wire cutters to get to work. Fatal to many was that order, for maxims began to play on the serried ranks an easy target. I shot a sniper who was picking people off from the cliff edge. I was a good shot and I saw him after we got up, hit in the mouth. Under cover of the cliff, we started cleaning our rifles, which were useless from the sand and water, and, and it would have amused you to see men cleaning their bolts with toothbrushes with Hell's Tornado all around. Major Richard Willis, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. Okay, so moments ago I mentioned going into detail regarding machine gun fire. 
In Peter Hart's book, Gallipoli, he states how there's little evidence to support the claims by soldiers that machine guns or even a machine gun was firing at them on W Beach, even though many historians believing the accounts from the soldiers as being true. Now, I'm not getting into a tussle with Mr. Hart. By no means do I think my intellectual level can match his. I'm a grunt, a knuckle dragger. I am a big fan of Peter Hart's books. In fact, that's where I get most of my knowledge. But I do disagree with him on this. And I say this because if you've heard the sound of machine gun bullets cracking through the air, it's different than a single rifle bullet. And I believe this was even more true in 1915. To shoot a single round from a rifle, you had to manually chamber the round with the bolt, fire, then action the bolt lever back and forth to chamber the next round, and so forth for each round. It's estimated there were around 100 to 150 Turks embedded in the trenches surrounding W Beach. That's really not that many troops for 300 yards of beach. Yes, I do believe they were all firing at the Brits, but not in sync with each other. And what I mean is, not all the Ottomans rounds were being fired at once altogether for it to constantly sound like machine gun fire. That would have to be orchestrated, which I doubt was the case. It's hard for me to believe that rifle bullets were mistaken for machine gun bullets. He also doesn't believe Major Richard Willis would be capable of targeting and killing the sniper if a machine gun was present. I have to disagree with that too. Clearly, they were taking some heavy fire, and the Major claimed to have confirmed the kill after coming up upon the body with his mouth shot off. Soldiers have made amazing shots under pressure in combat. So soldiers on D-Day, under an extreme hail of machine gun fire, were taking out machine gunners and snipers. And soldiers today make incredible shots under extreme pressure. And the 29th Division was made up of men who could shoot. Regardless, Mr. Hart is obviously entitled to his own thoughts on the matter, and he is a historian, and I respect his thoughts and opinions. I personally just don't agree with him on this matter. Do I believe Major Willis killed the sniper? I do, and I believe it's a historical fact. Do I believe there was machine gun or even more machine, machine guns? I have no reason not to if that's what was described by the soldiers there. But I don't think that there's actual proven solid evidence, which is why I could understand the difference of opinions. I believe the men could dif differentiate between rifle bullets and machine gun bullets cracking through the air. But you know what? Take my opinion with a grain of salt. Again, I'm just a knuckle dragger. Men from the fuselers were desperately trying to get through the wire as bullets continued to rain down on them. By now, bodies were laid out dead, gushing blood on the sand. Some, some men were making their way with, with wire cutters while others out of desperation were crawling underneath, getting their packs and uniforms snagged and ripped by the wire. A captain described the situation after finding the cutters useless, saying, quote, There was a man there before me shouting for wire cutters. I got mine out, but could not make the slightest impression. The front of the wire by now was a thick mass of men, the majority of whom never moved again. The trenches on the right raked us, and those above us raked our right, while trenches and machine guns fired straight down the valley. The noise was ghastly and the sights horrible. 
I eventually crawled through the wire with great difficulty as my pack kept catching on the wire. I got under a small mound which actually gave us protection. The weight of our packs tired us so that we could only gasp for breath. Captain Harold Clayton, 1st Lancashire Fusilers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. Imagine this. You're a young man, maybe between 18 years of age or 25 years of age with the Fusilers, and you make it through the wire to protective mound of sand. This is your first opportunity to get your breath and assess the situation. There was no assessing at the wire. There was only desperation to get through. This was the time to collect yourself. You're breathing hard, almost panting. Your heart is racing. You're looking around to your left and right, and all you could see is dead bodies littered everywhere, with the sand now stained red. Men with limbs missing, laying dead. Men with holes in their head, with their brains spilled out, laying dead. Men dying, crying out. I can only imagine it was a scene of horror and chaos. A major described the situation, saying, quote, On the right of me, on the cliff, was a line of Turks in a trench taking pot shots at us. Ditto on the left. I looked back. There was one soldier between me and the wire, and a whole line in a row on the edge of the sands. The sea behind them was absolutely crimson, and you could hear the groans through the rattle of musketry. A few were firing. I signaled to them to advance. I shouted to the soldier behind to signal, but he shouted back, I am shot through the chest. I then perceived they were all hit. I took a rifle from one of the men with me and started in at the men on the cliff on the right, but you could only fire slowly as I had to get the bolt open with my foot. It was clogged with sand. About this time, Manzel was shot dead next to me. Our men now began to scale the cliffs from the boats on the outer flanks. Major Harold Shaw, 1st Lancashire Fusilers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. This was a tough fight for the Lancashires. They were dealt a bad card from the start. Brigadier General Stuart Hare eventually came onto the scene after the men had already made their way through the wire. And just when he about had things under control, he was badly wounded by a gunshot to the cab and had to be stretchered off. Overall command of W Beach was eventually given to Lieutenant Colonel Owen Woolley Dodd, who eventually brought order to the chaos. Casualties were high, but the men eventually linked up with the Royal Fusiliers and began the attack on Hill 138. The Turks didn't have much reinforcements at that point in that sector. In fact, there was only two platoons from the 326th Regiment sent to support this fight. By 0830 hours, the 1st Essex Regiment diverted from V Beach, arrived at W and threw themselves into the fight at Hill 138. But somehow the Turks held them back. By this point, W Beach still had not been secured. Around noon, the 4th Worcestershire Regiment began to make their way onto the beach. Lieutenant Colonel Dodd coordinated with the Navy to bombard the hill. Then he ordered the 88th Brigade to attack. And finally, around 1500, the last of the Turks at Hill 138 were driven out. As night fell, so did confusion. They just fought a ferocious battle to take Hill 138. 
They didn't know whether to advance any further, not knowing what lay ahead. Even though the Tommies outnumbered the Turks 10 to 1, they were unsure of the resistance moving forward. They made the decision to halt in place. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up the landings at W Beach and Kumkale. We're not even close to being done with 1915. I still have probably two more episodes to finish off the landings and much more after that. 1915 was a long year packed with blood-filled history. This episode's Great War movie recommendation is a short film you can watch on Amazon Prime called Waiting for Dawn. I don't want to spoil a short film or, or any movie at that, but it's about not only having to have feared the enemy in this war, but also having to fear your own country. And I'll leave it at that. Check it out. Let me know what you think about it through social media. I found it to be upsetting, sad, but true. I liked it. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Thank you for the continued support. As I always say, you fans are the best and are the reason I'm doing this. Stay safe. Stay warm if it's cooling down in your neck of the woods. Spark a fire in the old chimney. Snuggle up with the missus or mister, whoever's next to you. Maybe grab yourself some of grandpa's old medicine if you're of age and give it a little sip. Whatever the situation is, I'm wishing you all the best. Until the next episode, take care, everyone.